Thanks, Todd. Hey, good morning. If you've got your Bibles, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That's where we'll be. My name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel. And um, so glad you're with us today. And like Todd said, if you're visiting, I hope you'll let us know. Um, I mean, even if you think the black book's kind of weird, you know, um, it's not. I mean, we really, we, we care about those things and uh, it's a great mechanism for us to know how to pray for you and um, and we do that as elders and pastors. We do that every week. And so, would love for you to let us know you were here or, or to stop by the Welcome Center on the way out. We've got a gift for you and love for you to, to have that. So, all right. So, here's the deal. Um, here's a couple of, the greatest chapter in the Bible. You'll read that if you start looking at literature. The, the greatest hymn of literature ever written. I read that this week. It's things that you'll see when you begin to study 1 Corinthians chapter 13. There are some that believe it is the greatest passage of literature ever written. The greatest hymn ever composed. And I would say, maybe that is right. I don't know. I don't know how to judge some of those kinds of things. But it is, I think, a hymn that nobody in Corinth would have been singing. And I'll show you why I think that here in just a few moments. The chapter, though, ends up being this sort of brutal expose of the, of the sad condition of the believers in the Corinthian church. Now, to be clear, let me say it this way. The, the Corinthian church, the church in Corinth, it wasn't a failure, okay? I mean, they, um, they were immensely gifted. You find that out beginning in chapter 1, and Paul references it all throughout. They had tremendous gifts. You might say about this church, it was vibrant or relevant or exciting or growing. And it was an important, it was a strategic church as the gospel would end up going west and into Europe, and then ultimately across the, the ocean. And, you know, the church would provide missionaries to advance the gospel. But, but they had some problems, all right? They had problems of ignorance. Paul will say, you know, you, you think you know this. You don't know this. They had problems of immaturity. And, and there's no greater, you know, glaring immaturity than someone who thinks they're mature, but they're really immature. There's a lot of those folks in Corinth. They were arrogant, proud, boastful. They were self-promoting and self-focused and self-satisfied. And something significant was lacking in this church. And so that's what Paul's writing to address. You've you got all these gifts, you amazing things. This is an amazing church. Except for the fact there is this one glaring thing that the essence of what it means to be a church, the essence of what it means to be a believer in Christ is not evident. So listen to the words. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I'm going to start at verse 1 and I'm going to read through it. Paul writes, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, 
I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. So, now faith, hope, and love, these three abide. But the greatest of these is love. Father, help us to hear these words this morning and pray that you'd apply them to our heart and that your spirit would illuminate, your, your Holy Spirit illuminate your holy, living, active word and Father, you'd change us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, go back up to the top if you've got your Bibles to, to the first verse of chapter 13 and we'll see that in these first three verses, what Paul's doing is he's doing what I'd call love math, okay? Anything minus love equals nothing. That's how the equation goes. He starts off, each of the verses begins with an if. If, and then it's followed by a great gift. You know, this spiritual gift, likely a spiritual gift that was present in some way in the church of Corinth. And then, he concludes each of those statements with this divine indictment, if you will. I mean, it's not, it's not Paul's opinion. It's the Word of God. Look at it again. In verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of, uh, of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And when Paul writes, if I, <laughs> what he means is, if you... 
Here he has the worship service in view. And he's going to address more of this when he gets to chapter 14. You remember he's, he's taken up the issue of spiritual gifts in chapter 12 and uh, specifically chapter 14 as it works itself out in the local congregation. And chapter 13 is, is not just sort of stuck in the middle of between these two things. It's part of the ongoing thought that Paul's having. And here, just to know, he's not disparaging tongues. You know, at the same time, I, I'm not sure he imagines or believes that they have the tongues of angels. I, I think he's probably using hyperbole here. Uh, yeah. I'd... They were experiencing, though, I think what he's tapping into, what he's addressing, they experienced, very likely, this great exuberance in worship. You know, probably very exciting, you know, rapturous, if you will. You know, you'd sing and speak in a supernatural way to God, and it was wonderful. You know, you'd believe and say, oh, it's amazing. like being caught up in the heavens today. And coming out of paganism, like, like all the, those that were in the early Corinthian church, they grew up in a, in a city where there were idols and shrines and temples on every corner. So they'd come out of paganism, and, and paganism didn't have praise services. They found themselves all of a sudden so much to be thankful for. I mean, they discovered the true God. They, they, they'd been saved, and pagan temples didn't have praise services. There wasn't anything to be thankful about. And so this congregation in Corinth, you know, and gathering and praising their hearts out, and it was wonderful, probably astonishing. Nobody had ever seen anything like it. So here in verse 1, Paul says, okay, you're doing this. You're even singing the songs of angels. Okay. But you have no love. Now, whatever that may mean, and we'll get to that here in a second. So, man, you're, you're praising your hearts out like crazy. You know, I mean, you guys are getting all worked up. But you don't have any love. And so, because of that, here's the, here's the indictment. You, you're, you are the equivalency of a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And so, why would Paul say that? Why does he use that language? Well, the language or the image that conjures up, it would have described what went on in the pagan temple or the shrine down the street. Not unlike what goes on in the world today, if you've ever traveled someplace. I mean, you go to the Middle East or you know, one of the Mediterranean countries or something, at 4 a.m. you're going to be woken up. Three reasons you did this in the pagan world to your gods. One is you tried to get the attention of your gods. Reminds me of 1 Kings chapter 18 where Elijah, he's in this, um, you know, sort of competition here in this, in this oh, back and forth with the prophets of Baal. And the prophets of Baal find themselves frustrated because their God's not answering them. And so, Elijah, he mocks the prophets. He's like, oh, well, you should try again. You know, I mean, um, maybe they're asleep. Maybe they went on vacation. He's like, oh, I know. Maybe they're in the bathroom. You'd also do this to drive off the evil spirits. They also would employ these 
sounds and noises to excite the worshipers, you know, to enhance the emotional experience, get everybody whipped up. And in Paul's language, so it's harsh here. He says, listen, without love, you, what you're doing is no different than what's going on down the street at the pagan temple. And this applies today, by the way. I mean, if we can't imagine, manage to get along around here and love each other and you know, where there is no love, all you have is noise. Maybe exuberant, maybe heartfelt. But if there's no love in the local congregation, there's, you know, there's no patience, there's no kindness, as, as Paul will explain. Then the worship you offer is just a noise. Well, in verse 2, it moves from the worship service to kind of, you know, addressing the ministry that they have. He says, you know, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and all faith. You know, these are spiritual uh, gifts for, you know, spiritual work and, and, and ministry. But Paul himself exalts these gifts. He admires them, tells us to pray for them, especially the gifts of knowledge and understanding. You know, prophetic powers, understanding, all mystery, all knowledge, all faith. I mean, just imagine if we had this. You know, to the fullest extent of, uh, think, think of the problems that we could solve as a church. Think of the healing and our marriages, and our personal lives, and the faith that moves obstacles. I mean, if a church had these, you know, all these gifts, you know, to the max, which it appears that in Corinth they did. You, you know, what, what you might say about that church, you know, the, the, you might say, man, that, that church, that's, that church is really something Except Paul says, if you don't have love, what? You're nothing. In verse 3, look at what he addresses. He addresses the generosity, you know, and the social consciousness and maybe martyrdom. Look at what it says. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned... Just deliver up my body to be burned. I mean, the first thought that comes to mind is martyrdom, and a lot of interpreters have read it that way. Could be what Paul's referring to. It could be that he's referring to fanaticism, that, that these guys are looking around and go, yeah, we've heard about the martyrdom in the church. You know, we're going to... We're in even more. This is our cause. We'll give our life to it. You know, it's kind of like when you see on the news a person that throws himself in front of the oil tanker in the middle of the highway, you know, because they, they care about clean energy. I mean, they're willing to give their life for clean energy. They're fanatics. Fanaticism. This is, fanaticism is not faith, by the way. Maybe Paul's addressing that. Maybe there was some of that sentiment going around. See, the problem is the most brilliant charity that they could possibly come up with, you know, the, the most generous of all spirits, and they were, evidently. And they weren't when you get to 2 Corinthians. But even if they had all that, it's not 
sufficient so as to merit reward from God. Or, or fanaticism, you know, so devout and so demonstrative that you'd throw yourself, your body on the fire to be burned. It's not sufficient so as to earn any standing with God. Because he says, look, without love, you gain nothing. Without love, the congregation's a noise. It's a, it is nothing. It gains nothing. They were marvelously gifted and equipped to praise and worship and gifted for supernatural ministry and marvelously able. But something's lacking. Something's needful, a heart, an essence. What's vital to being a church, what's vital at the heart of being a believer, they lacked love. And if you look at Paul's theology, you know, and it's sort of the broader scope of it, you realize, you know, he's talking about the, the grace of God, I mean, the experienced grace of God and the love of Jesus and the fellowship of the saints, you know. I mean, they lack what Paul's going to describe, describe in 4 through 7. Look, look, look at, you know, it, it's patient and kind. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't keep score. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth that bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. And I mean, you read this and, and what you find is, you know, this well-known extraordinary section in this extraordinary passage, well-known, little understood maybe, less than that even applied. It's the beauty of studying God's Word together. You know, we go verse by verse. It keeps us from plucking sections out of it, you know, to help us understand the best we can how it is or what it is that God has revealed. And so, what's the paragraph mean? I mean what's Paul's aim here? What's he doing? What's this about? Well, you can pick up a lot of commentators or read a lot of old preachers and, um, you know, sermons. A lot of it is, is read and, and preached in a way that says, look, this is a perfect description of Jesus. And what Paul's doing in verses 4 through 7 is he's describing Jesus. And maybe, I, I don't know that that's Paul's aim. I don't know that was consciously Paul's um, purpose in doing it. I mean, of course, Jesus is the only human being that has ever, you know, set foot on, on planet earth in the history of, of life here uh, to embody this perfectly. Yes, that can be said for sure. But I don't know if it was Paul's purpose. Some, some would say, well, what Paul's doing is he sat down, you know, he, he's writing this, this um, definitive essay or thesis, you know, on love. It's a portrait of love. It's, it's comprehensive. It's, it, it, um, it's, uh, it's love from all the angles, you know? Maybe. But to be fair, well, well it is. It's beautiful and powerful. It's that for sure. It's not comprehensive in the sense it's made out to be. And that's okay. 
I don't think that's what Paul was meaning to do. I think in the context, I think what Paul's doing is he's painting a picture of the Corinthians. And I think that's what he's been doing in all of the chapters up to this point. But it's a backhanded picture. It's a picture that highlights not the grace that's evident in the Corinthian life, but, but despite the outpouring of God's grace, it, it's a picture of the disgrace of the Corinthians. Kind of like, you should be this way, but you're really not. You're this way. You're like, you're like bizarro Christians. You guys know bizarro Superman? Don't Google that right now, all right? You, it's a black hole of the internet waiting for you. But, you know, by this freak accident, you have this, you know, copy of Superman that's made in, in the comics. And in and, and Bizarro Superman, he has all the power of Superman, but he doesn't have the same disposition of Superman. Where Superman serves the good of others, Bizarro Superman serves himself. And in the end, he, he ends up being a villain, See, when you roll it up, the Corinthians aren't, aren't very kind. They're, they're not patient. They're arrogant. They're rude. I mean, remember, Paul has the reports from Chloe's people. And even though the Corinthians would have claimed they were all these things, I mean, they claimed about themselves they were very spiritual. Paul frames it this way. He says, look, real Christian love is not like this. In other words, Christian love is not like you, Corinthians. I'll give you three examples in this, in this list. At the end of verse 4, you see it, um, love is not arrogant. The King James uses the word puffed up. It's hard to beat the language and the beauty of the King James Version in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's not arrogant. It's not it's not puffed up. Well, we know that the Corinthians, they were arrogant. They were puffed up. Paul's right. Look, love, it's not like what you are. Listen to a couple of these examples. In, in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, Look, I applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what's written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of another. A little further down in chapter 4, verse 18. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come if the Lord wills, and I'll find out the talk of these arrogant people. Chapter 5, verse 1. It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you, and a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. It says, this knowledge that you possess, well, this, knowledge you, this knowledge, he says, puffs up. But love builds up. And there's puffed up people throughout the history of the world, right? It's in all the great literature and films. It's, you know, the, the great antagonist, you know, the, the prideful person, the arrogant person that you wait the whole story for them to get what's coming to them. All along it reveals all these things about you in the process. Listen, we can find these kind of people in the everyday walk of life right here in Tyler, Texas. Every society, every community, every gathering of 
people. It's common everywhere. But should it be so in the church? And Paul says, no. No. Well, verse 5, at the very beginning in the ESV, it has, or, or rude. The love's not arrogant or, or rude. The King James says, doth not behave itself unseemly. I like that. New American Standard, unbecomingly. You could translate it dishonorably. In chapter 7, verse 36, he's instructing. There's a guy, he's wooed a woman and betrothed her there to get married. She's already picked out the dress and booked the caterer and the florist and the venue and all those things. And when it gets down to it, the guy says, oh, no, you know, I, I can't marry you. And Paul says, that's behaving improperly. That's unseemly. Don't do that. Tell the truth. Fulfill your loyalties. Keep your word. Look out for others' interests above your own. The, the, these qualities, they've fallen on hard times, haven't they? And, and behavior like that, it really, it shouldn't be a part of a society that says, listen, we value truth and honesty. These are important. You know, this is the social contract we're all in. And we demand it from everybody else around us. But when it comes down to it, how many, how few the amount of people. will actually move forward in the way that they would demand of others. And Paul says this is not love. It's not Christian behavior. Now listen, Paul, he's not writing about the world here. He's writing about the Corinthian church. A little later in 5, it says, love does not insist on its own way. In chapter 10, verse 24, he already said, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. But that's what they were doing. So Paul's writing these words, and then they've echoed down through the centuries. And the standards set forth here in verses 4 and 5 and 6 and 7, it's lunacy in the world's estimation. People have no intention of abiding by this. But Paul, he's writing to the church. Let's be clear about that. This is Christian behavior. He's not trying to define an ethic for the world. In, in the broader context of Paul's theology, only the Christian can have any hope of here in the power of the Holy Spirit. The love is a fruit of the Spirit. It's not the root of your Christian life. It is the fruit of the Spirit's work in your life. And it is really... In and of itself, it's beyond the capacity of sinful humanity, no matter what value or platform you might espouse. You add all these things up in 4 through 7. It's not about loving God. It's about loving each other. Living together. In John 13, Jesus says, A new commandment I give you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. But by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. And you think, if you've never read this before, you think, oh, well, here's what he's going to say. By this, all people will know you're my disciples. You'll speak in the tongue of angels. 
You'll have prophetic powers that blow people's minds. You'll be so smart, people won't be able to deny that you belong to me. You'll be so generous. You'll be willing to throw your body on top of the bonfire. He doesn't say any of that. You know what he says? They'll know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Listen, the way Paul's describing this, it is supernatural evidence of discipleship. The Corinthians, they had so much, but yet they didn't have love. And so, so it, was, it was like they had nothing. Verse 8 begins, love never ends. And, and then he, he says, Look, but, but as for prophecies, <clears throat> they pass away. For tongues, they cease. Knowledge, it'll pass away. We know in part and prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So, let me walk through this for just a second and get at the heart of what Paul's saying. And then I'm going to answer a question the only question any of you will have at the end of all that. You'll be like, was that even about love? So one of the problems in the Corinthian church is they, they, they mistook the now, the here and now, for the then. Okay? You, you can see it in verse 12. Look at verse 12. For, for now, Paul says, we see in the mirror. But then... Face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. See, there's a now and there's a then. Now it's this life. It's, it's this age. He's talking about what Christians presently enjoy and experience in the, uh, right now by the grace of God. Then he's referring to the next life, the, the, the age to come. The, the blessed hope that we have as Christians, you know, the, what we'll experience when we get to glory. In, in the Corinthians, they're confusing the two. They believed themselves to be this, you know, superior church with superior, they, they were heavenly minded. They, they boasted of the knowledge of God. They boasted that in them, heaven had come to earth. In chapter 4, verse 8, Paul mocks them and says, oh, you already have, somehow you've already been made kings. They were claiming that they presently enjoyed what really only could be enjoyed in the life to come. And they had these proofs. that They would say, you know, they weren't ashamed, they weren't ashamed to fly these flags of their proof. Your prophecy, tongues, Knowledge. So, in, in verse 8, Paul begins to pinpoint these things. He, he begins to, to, to talk about these flags of their boasting, you know, the prophecy and tongues and knowledge. And he doesn't deny the gifts, by the way, nor the evidence of the gifts. It's the boasting that's in error. In, in, in prophecy, you know, it, it, they believed it gave them, you know, the privilege of heavenly teaching. You know, while everybody else is laboring hard to prepare sermons, they got it directly from the voice of heaven. Tongues. You know, they were boasting the, the, the ability to offer heavenly worship, you know, to sing with the angels. Everybody else had to settle for Chris Tomlin or whatever. <laughs> Knowledge. They had heavenly understanding to all the mysteries and everybody else was lacking. I mean, they believed about themselves. They possessed what not even the apostle Paul possessed you know, the founder of their church. And they wanted Paul to catch up with them. 
And so in answer to these boastful claims, Paul says, look, okay, these are very real and they're very wonderful gifts, but here's the reality. They're actually imperfect and they're going to pass away. Therefore, the here and now, the interim between Christ's first and second coming. You know, in verse 8, at Christ's coming, these things are going to get left behind. They'll pass away. Cease. That's what it means when the perfect comes, when Jesus comes. So, in other words, these can't be marks of the heavenly life to come already because heaven doesn't possess these things. They're temporary. They're not eternal. There will be a great many things that we end up leaving behind when the perfect comes. We'll leave behind church buildings and houses and bank accounts and Hospitals, funeral homes, insurance policies, and Wall Street portfolios. And listen, all, those are for the here and now. They're fine. They're not eternal. They're not for the then. We're going to leave them behind. They're going to pass away. In verse 9 and 10, so this M part, so, so look at how it goes. Prophecies. Knowledge, that gets carried into verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. The in part, NIV translates it imperfect, incomplete, partial. It's a contrast with what is perfect. And that's Jesus in his second coming. So, so these gifts, far from signaling, you know, some perfect state, they highlight our imperfect state. We have not yet arrived. We are not yet all we will be. Now, real quickly, some of you are like, okay, fine, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Dude, can we still speak in tongues or not? Like, that's all you want to know. That's fine. Let me just show you real quick, all right? Let me, let me show you my answer to that. Verse 8, you got prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, right? You go to verse 9, look at what it says. For we know in part that, pro that corresponds to knowledge. And we prophesy in part. Tongues gets left up in verse 8. Only knowledge and prophecy come down to verse 9. And then, when the perfect comes, what is partial, what's that? Knowledge and prophecy pass away. It's like, well, what do you do with the tongues will cease in verse 8? Well, so I take knowledge and prophecy. That'll persist until Jesus comes back. I have to find prophecy, preaching, foretelling, uh, not foretelling. I don't think that's part of it anymore. Knowledge, I think that's what the Spirit of God does in, in illuminating our minds and, and helping us understand God's Word. I, I think that's what that applies. Tongues, I, so here's what it says about tongues. It, they will cease. So when is that? Paul doesn't say. So I don't know is the answer. I don't know when they'll cease. So they will cease. I don't know when. Have they already ceased? I don't know. I don't know. Here's what I know. When you get to the next chapter, Paul is going to instruct them about tongues. And he's going to say, look, tongues, fine. They're not for the worship service. 
They're not for the worship service because they don't build up the church. Tongues only builds up the individual. And Paul's point is don't bring anything into the worship service that doesn't build up the body of Christ. Go speak in tongues. Get in your closet. Go crazy. I mean, seriously, it's fine. Paul says, and I, so I'll, I don't want to, if Paul says it, it's good enough for me. I do not forbid anybody to speak in tongues. We're just not going to do it in the worship service because it doesn't build anybody up. And by the way, don't bring anything into the worship service that doesn't build people up. Don't bring your bad attitude. Don't bring gossip. Don't, don't bring anything in here that doesn't build up the body of Christ. All right. In verse 11, Paul says, when I, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. This is the second point. Not only do the gifts they boast in are, are imperfect. They are. They will pass away. They're for the here and now. They're not eternal. But they have not reached maturity yet either. Paul will never give us some kind of a theology that makes us think we will ever obtain perfection on this side of the then to come. But over and over and over and over again, Paul admonishes us and exhorts us and commands us towards Christian maturity by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he begins here in verse 11 with his own testimony. He believes in maturity. He believes in putting childishness away. In fact, he started off in, in chapter 3. You remember? He says, listen, brothers, I, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. You're childish. It's time to grow up is what he's saying. He's leading this because in 14, he's going to address, look, what you guys are doing is you're showing up at the church service and you're showing off. You're showing off, you're using the gift of tongues and you're showing off to each other like little children do when they want applause. You know, when they go, look at my cartwheel. No, look at my painting or, you know, look at my whatever, you know, and you're supposed to applaud and, and give affirmation. And that's fine. That's normal, fine behavior for children, not for adults. And instead of building each other up, they were showing themselves off. And Ephesians chapter 4 deals with it. Paul's well, right there. The God's put the church together in such a way so that the church gets built up and equipped so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Oh man, how relevant as that today. In verse 12, for, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've fully been known. It, Paul wants them to know. You, you notice the we and the I. But Paul... I, not even Paul the Apostle has obtained full knowledge in the here and the now. He includes himself. At the moment, we see in a mirror dimly. 
Listen, we're responsible to to get after and to know and to study and dig deep in everything that God has clearly revealed. And then there's there's enough of that to study for a lifetime. But there's still a great many things we don't know, particularly when we find ourselves in the midst of God's providence or grief or suffering. Then face to face. Then now we know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Let that sink in for a minute. Heaven knows us fully. God knows us fully, more fully than we can ever know ourselves here and now. Verse 13, so faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Love's the thing they needed. It's the thing they lacked. Love abides. Love's the greatest. Love abides. It's in contrast to the things that pass away. Faith, hope, and love, real quickly. It's this technical, you know, grouping of Paul in Colossians chapter 1. He does it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He does it. I heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Talks about in Thessalonians, your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope. When Paul thinks of faith and hope and love, these are the genuine marks of the believer. You can think of it as the Holy Spirit's stamp on your life at new birth. When you've become a new creation, you're stamped with the authenticity of the Spirit's work in your life. And it lasts forever, Paul says. So why is love the greatest of these? Well, I think this, I think faith, you know, God has no need to trust in anything other than himself. He wouldn't be God if he did. Hope, God doesn't hope. He decrees, he's not wringing his hands about anything. So those two are not necessarily characteristics of God, faith and hope. But love, 1 John 4, 8 says what? God is what? Love. Love's the greatest because it's a very characteristic of God. It's like he's imprinted a portion of his own nature onto us at our new birth. Love, I mean, and to understand love, we have to start in heaven. If you start on earth trying to understand love, you fall short of the true height and depth and length and and breadth of the love of God. You can't start anywhere on earth and get to it, no matter how great the starting place. Not, Not marriage, not motherhood. Not a child's love, not a father's love. Even those, you come up short. Paul said, if you don't have love, you don't have the essential quality of what it means to be a church, what it means to be a believer. Faith, hope, and love, these are indispensable. They're marvelously powerful. They're not natural. They're supernatural. They take me out of myself, deliver me from self-love and, and worldliness. You know, faith, no longer do I put my trust in myself. I put my trust in God. Hope, no longer do I hope in myself for the things of the world. My hope is in God and what He wills. His future. Love means I'm no longer trapped in the love of self. I'm linked to other people, especially God's people. Giving love to someone else. Listen, self-love Self-love only is this miserable power in our life. And we know how damaging it is when we 
fully turn the power of love inward. Here's what it does. It grows narcissism and selfishness. It breeds impatience and bitterness and resentment and envy and boasting. We must have our own way. Actually, everything Paul says in 4 to 7, that love's not... It's contrasting the love of the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of self-love turned inward. And the love of God comes and it frees us to love others. Now I want to close with one word. First John chapter 4. And what John says here is real instructive to us. First John chapter 4. In this is love. It's, it's another picture, another place where God's revealed. In this is love. You want to know what love is? Here it is. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John says, you want to know what love is? Look at the crucified Jesus. My son stepped out of eternity into humanity. He became your sin and died your death. He hangs on that cross for you. You want to know what love is? Look there. And then he says this remarkable thing. Beloved, if God so loves us, and he does, oh man, he does. Then we also ought to, and then we expect the verse to say, love God back. Don't we? It's not what it says. Not that we're not to love God back. Of course we are. But it says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to what? Love one another. Why? Verse 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The invisible God becomes visible in the midst of a congregation that loves one another. That's why Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples by what? Your love for one another. Let me say this. It'd be easy to run out of here this morning and go, man, that was a great, good on love. I'm a fan of love. And then get in your car and go on and does not have any effect in your life. But let me say this. Let me challenge you this morning. Won't you think through verses 4 through 7? Where in that would the Holy Spirit say, you know what? I want more for you. I want to supernaturally unlock something in your life. You see, you've been hanging on to bitterness. or You've been keeping score. Use it as an evaluation for your marriage. How about that? The back of my ring, inside of my ring, says love bears all things. I'll tell you, my wife's bared more than I've had to. Are you patient? Are you kind? Are you boastful, envious, proud, arrogant, rude? Where is it? Where's the Holy Spirit going to press in on you this morning? So gently, 
loving, that's mercy and grace poured out on you, but will not let you go this morning because he wants so much more for you. It's so much more for us. Where? Don't run out of here without settling that and asking the Lord to work that out this morning inside of what he's doing in you. Father, I pray you do these things that only you can do. We're so funny in that we're enamored with all these gifts of tongues and prophecy and knowledge and he, all these things. We just spend so much time trying to figure out and if they're still around and Father, the truth is all those things are passing away. They're just temporary. They're imperfect. They're, in part of the, they're part of the imperfect here and now. But Father, to gaze into this chapter and to see faith, hope, and love, and love is the greatest of the three. Overwhelmed by how supernatural and miraculous and powerful that is in our lives as we turn that outward on each other. Father, I dare confess we have no idea what you have in store for us on the other side of that kind of love for each other. So, work in us. Convict us. Encourage us. I pray this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit.